0: Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsradio.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies, 1500 a.m. and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio.
1: Interfacing complete, please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now
0: here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ.
2: Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at right University Talking Technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz.
1: And I'm Jim Russ. Coming up on today's show, there is now medical evidence to prove that selfies make your nose look bigger. We'll tell you how to keep your sanity by turning off facial recognition on your smartphone. And we'll also tell you how to make that smartphone last longer. In Profiles in IT, it's Gerald Anderson Lawson, who was a pioneer in the video game industry. And, of
2: course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. This is
1: like four weeks in a row he hasn't screwed oh, it up. Oh, I'm must telling be, you.
2: Yeah, I, I think he wants a vacation i think he
1: is afraid that somebody's going to take his car
2: it could be we got an email from mimi in charlotte north carolina dear doc and jim i'm tired of buying garage door remotes for everyone in the family (laughs) is there any way that i can simply use my cell phone to open the garage door that'd be much simpler love the show mimi in charlotte north carolina Well, Mimi, there is a very, very easy solution for this. You can get a remote switch that's put in parallel with the garage door button inside the garage that opens and closes it. And this switch is connected to your Wi-Fi network, and you can control that switch with your cell phone. So you can open and close your garage door remotely. Now, I like a particular device. I, I like the next garage door remote opener, NEXX Garage Remote door opener. It's called the NXG 100. It's $99 on Amazon. And you can activate the garage door using either your next mobile app or you can give voice commands to Alexa. Like I can say, Alexa, open the garage door. Because, you know, there are times when I just don't want to have to walk all the way to the garage to open it up for someone. Or you could also connects with uh, Google Assistant. You can also set it up for geofencing. So, whenever your cell phone is, gets close to the garage, it automatically opens. You don't, so, you don't, you know, because the whole problem of having to go up there and push that button, just a lot of work. Now, yeah. you just drive up, it'll open automatically. Boom. It's very nice. It also has remote monitoring it. Have, have you ever left in the morning and say, I wonder if I close the garage door? No. Well, you can check your rep- app, and it will say whether the garage door is open or closed, and you can close it remotely. Or if somebody's visiting the house and they that you need to open up the garage door for them for some reason, you could open it up and let them in. So this is a very nice device. Next garage door, it's very easy to set up. It got extremely high ratings. By the way, it also it has a magnetic sensor that you put on the door somewhere, and so it can tell when the door is open or closed. That's how it knows whether the door is open or closed, and you simply take and plug it into the same two electrical outlets that on your garage door opener that that button inside the garage plugs into, and bingo, you're up and running. Mm-hmm. That was a good thought, yes. and, and I'm thinking, after doing all this research for Mimi, I'm getting one.
1: In fact, well, I, I— you have all the other toys, so why not?
2: In fact, I ordered it. In, while i
1: was preparing for the show it's going to
2: arrive tomorrow. Did
1: <laughs> you get it on the Amazon?
2: Yeah, i got it on Amazon of course. And it uh so i'm really looking forward to this thing because oh the other thing you can set it up to do is that you know how sometimes people forget to close the garage door at night? Yes. You can program it to automatically close the garage door say at 10:30 at night if the garage door is open.
1: Oh wow. So
2: it's all very uh very it's a very nice addition to and it will work with almost any garage door that that has two Contacts for for that button inside the garage. We got an email from Yoel Sarkis. Yoel Sarkis, dear Dr. Richard, I always <laughs> love the show. You guys do a great job and have a lot of information. I heard a lot about mining cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, but I'd like to know more about it. Is it worth it? If so, what hardware do I need? What software do I need? I I looked them up, and they went from a couple hundred dollars to thousands of dollars for hardware. I'm not sure why. And why are they using video cards to process it and not the processors? Thank you, Yawul Sarkis. Well, Yol, that's a very good question. I'm going to go into some detail here because a lot of people kind of wanted to get into Bitcoin mining. And um, I'm going to blow through a lot of stuff very quickly, but it's all going to be posted to the website on Monday, techtalkonline.com, and you can go there and you can get a complete rundown. Well, it turns out that Bitcoin mining is a process in which transactions are verified and added to a public ledger known as the blockchain. Uh, And that also means that as you do that verification, uh, new Bitcoins are released to pay the people who verify it, and the verifiers are called miners. Anyone with access to the Internet and a suitable hardware can participate in mining, The mining process involves compiling recent transactions into blocks and trying to solve a computationally difficult puzzle. The participant who solves the puzzle first to place the next block in the blockchain claims the reward. So the faster you compute, the better. The rewards which incentivize mining are both the transaction fees associated with the transaction as as well as the release of new bitcoins. Now, the amount of new bitcoins released each mine block is called the block reward. The block reward has been halved every time an additional 210,000 blocks are issued, or roughly every four years. In 2009, the reward was 50 bitcoins for a block. In 2018, it's now 12.5 bitcoins per block, and it will keep decreasing so that means that mining is less and less, uh, less, and less uh, um, profitable. And also, as we go down in time, the, the, the calculations get more robust, and it takes longer and longer and longer to do the verification. Now, in the earliest days, when, the, when it wasn't that computationally cr- uh, um, complex, Bitcoin mining was done with CPUs in a normal desktop computer. Then later on, graphics cards were used because they were much more efficient at processing the kind of algorithms that Bitcoin uses because they were set up for processing images and working on pixels and that, and, and they were set up for parallel processing that you need for images, and that was much more suited for the Bitcoin kind of mining. So graphic cards were much more energy efficient when they were doing the calculations, and so, and so graphical processing units became dominant. Now, but mo- but now because you have to get super high efficiency, uh, application-specific integrated circuits are being used, ASICs, and so now all the top-end uh, pieces of hardware use ASICs. And these ASICs, application-specific integrated circuits, are specifically designed for Bitcoin mining, so they're even more efficient than the graphical uh, than the graphical processing units. Now, the first ASICs were released in 2013, and they've been improved every year. So, But mining's competitive, and it can only be done profitably with the latest ASICs because the latest ASICs are highly uh, energy efficient, and they calculate very quickly. Now, if you want to build your own miner, if you want to build your own mining hardware, uh, there's a great site, by the way, uh, which is... Um, Bitcoinmining.com. They got a lot of good information on there. Bitcoinmining.com. So there, you know, if you want to build your own, you can get some ASIC systems. There's there's a good ASIC miner called the Gecko Science Bitcoin Miner, and it costs around forty nine dollars, and it will uh, it will calculate nine point five giga hashes per second. That's how a hash you know, you're calculating hashes in the Bitcoin calculation and how many hashes you can you can calculate per second is the speed. It does 9.5 gigahashes per second, and its power efficiency is 0.33 watts per gigahash. And that's a very important number because if you get a, a mining device which has low power efficiency, the cost for electricity will exceed what you earn in Bitcoin, and that hmm. is the big problem. The cost of electricity is your dominant cost, and it can very frequently cost more than what you're earning in Bitcoin. So you've got to be very, you've got to get the most efficient units. So you can get this, these particular units. They have a USB output. That Gecko Science Bitcoin Miner, USB output. You can get a USB a hub. You can plug six or ten of them into that, and then you can attach that hub, that that USB hub. To a very small Raspberry Pi computer, which is a which is a, a very small computer and it doesn't use much power, and it will run the uh, the mining software. And with that little setup, you could you could actually in a very low cost way get a Bitcoin mining machine up and going. If you go to this site, BitcoinMining.com, it'll tell you exactly how to build it. Now, if you're more if you're guy now, if you want to just buy it, if you want to buy the the biggest and baddest machine right out there. <laughs> you could get the Antminer S9. Now it has a capacity of 13.5 tera hashes per second. I mean that is that's 1000 times faster than this previous one. Its power efficiency is 0.098 watts per gigahash. It's about 3 times as efficient as these as the previous ASIC chips. Now this thing and it will and this thing will mine about a third of a bitcoin per month. But it costs $2,000. Now, you see, here's the thing. A third of a Bitcoin per month. Bitcoins are currently selling for around $9,000. So you could uh, earn about $3,000 a month, but then you'd have to subtract out the cost of power. But this unit costs, uh, you know, a couple of thousand dollars. So you really are going to have to get good hardware if you want to make any money because you've got to be highly power efficient. So you can check those two options out on on um, on bitcoinmining.com. Now you have to run software. Now a couple of the most and the software is actually free. A couple of the most popular software programs are CG Miner and BFG Miner. CG Miner and BFG Miner. Now these are command line programs. Uh, so you you know you have to get be familiar with you know issuing commands but they're very efficient and very popular. Now if you want to have more of a windows look a, like of a graphical user interface you can use easy miner and easy miner simply wraps a graphical interface around either cgminer or bfgminer and those are free and you can run those. Now what most people do who are just individuals mining you see if, if you're mining it all by yourself it might take you a long time to actually win the calcu- win the, win the pool win, win the, you know win the lottery because you're able to you know complete the block first. and so what people do when they're individual miners if they don't have thousands of machines they, they actually join a mining pool with a lot of other people that are doing calculations and then they pool their <clears throat> calculations together then they can do faster calculations. And then every month, they just split up the rewards according to how much processing they did. Now, so I would suggest that you join a pool. Now, probably the best decentralized pool is the P2 pool, P number two pool, highly recommended. Other pools that are worth checking out are the BitMinter, the CK pool, Allegis pool, and the Slush pool. So these are all pools that you can join, and I think you're going to want to join a pool unless you have so many machines that, that you can do the calculations every every time. Now, you, now of course, when you do Bitcoin money, you have to earn your Bitcoins. You've got to put them somewhere, so you need a Bitcoin wallet. And uh, probably uh, Copay is a great Bitcoin wallet. So I don't suggest you store your Bitcoin wallets in any of these uh uh, exchange sites, because there's been so much uh, fraud on those. You know, I, I think you should store it yourself. And uh, when you set up your Bitcoin wallet, make certain you have two-factor authentication so people don't steal your Bitcoins. And when you're not using your... When you're not calculating Bitcoins, you're not using your wallet, you should just disconnect it from the Internet so nobody has, an, right. has any access to it. Now, as far as where's the best place to do Bitcoin mining, remember I said electricity is... The big cost. By the way, on that website, there's a little calculator that will calculate whether you're going to make money based on whether you're using electricity. Well, probably the best place to do Bitcoin mining is where the electricity is free. So, okay. So you could do that in your, you know, in your bedroom and have your parents pay for it, for instance. Or right. I have to say there are a lot of people who just plug in a computer at work. Oh my and God. don't say anything. Oh my God! And they and they've just got this little Bitcoin money run, running under their desk.
1: They better hope that they get a lot of bitcoins because when they're found out,
2: yeah. And there, I there, there are a lot of cases where you heard IT guys running Bitcoin money software in the data center.
1: Oh man, that sounds very like very virtual
2: machine. So this is so if you want to get the most cost-effective way to do it, that's that's the most cost-effective way to do it, but it's illegal. Yeah. So it turns out that probably the hottest country for Bitcoin mining is Iceland. Really? Because Iceland has cool temperatures because you gotta cool, you gotta cool these processors down. It's got cheap geothermal energy, so power's dirt cheap up there. So if you really wanted to get serious about Bitcoin mining, move to Iceland. No, <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure. Why not? Let's upgrade
2: your whole life. Now, Canada is also pretty good, and so there. And also, Siberia is very good. So, what we're, there And
1: a, you can still call Tech Talk from Siberia that's, that's via right.
2: Skype. You can. And so you see. I mean, it's it's interesting. In Siberia, electricity is relatively cheap. So, so you want to go to places where it's cool, so you can cool down your you know your your processors, and where electricity is cheap. Well, that's a, that's probably a,
1: all you'd ever want to know about Bitcoin I, so, mining. <laughs> so you dabble in everything. Have you thought about dabbling in Bitcoins?
2: I'm thinking I'm thinking instead of buying Bitcoins, I think I'm going to mine Bitcoins. I, I I was looking at this thing because I'm telling you, if if I would get that one two thousand dollar unit, and I was running through the calculations, uh, it it would probably it would probably generate you know a revenue of a couple thousand a month. So I'm thinking, uh, wh- why not give it a shot? I would join a pool. So, so I I would rather do that than buy bitcoins and speculate in
1: bitcoins. I'd rather earn bitcoins. So if you earn the bitcoins, what would you do with them? Well, you would could,
2: you, you could sell, you could convert them to cash. You you go to exchange and sell them or or you could just hold on to them and hope you could speculate and hope that they go up in value
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know because mm-hmm. they, they they shot up to 18,000 and then they dropped right. down to 9,000 so 000. but what
1: would you do would you would you cash them out or would you just hang on to them i'd hang on to them interesting
2: i would just hang on to them and so Actually, after doing all this research on Bitcoin mining, I'm actually, well, just,
1: just like that garage door opener. I was going to say, send the doc an email and he's going to buy whatever as um, you ask about.
2: I'm thinking of becoming a Bitcoin miner. Yes, indeed.
1: The next email is about a Tesla, isn't it? I'm kidding. No, uh, no, 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 no.
2: We got an email from Alex in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I started using the Chrome browser after you discussed its new ad blocking features. Unfortunately, the browser will not play any sound, even for my YouTube videos. And sometimes I want to listen to sound. How can I fix this problem? Alex in Fairfax. Well, Alex, you can very easily fix the problem. This, this actually happened to me one time. I did just stopped playing, uh, just stop playing uh, sound. So you can simply open up the Chrome browser, and then you want to open up the settings. There, those are these three vertical dots in the upper right-hand corner. Click on those three vertical dots and then there are a menu will come up, scroll down to the bottom of the menu and click advanced because this is an advanced kind of adjustment. Then once the advanced window comes up, scroll all the way down to the bottom of that and there's a section called clean up and restore. So first of all click the reset button and that will reset everything in the browser back to its default condition and everything works then. And it could also be that you have gotten some kind of malware in the browser or something. So then after you've done the reset, click Clean Up Computer, and that will get rid of any sort of nefarious software that may have been affecting your Chrome browser. And that should fix your problem. By the way, now, I've switched from Internet Explorer to Chrome, and that new ad blocking um, feature is really nice. What Google did, and I think it was really smart, because I, I I had been using on on my um, on my browsers a program called Ad Blocker, and I was just blocking all the ads. And Google, of course, makes money on ads, and they realized that more and more people—I mean, it was upwards of 20% of the people were blocking all the ads—and that really cuts into Google revenue. So they said, we've got to do something about this, and I think they 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 did something very clever. The problem with ads and why people block them is that they're so obtrusive. You, you go to a web page and then you wait and wait and wait for it to load. And you can't scroll through the web page until the stinking ad loads. And uh-huh. then the ad may have some sort of animation, some kind of pop up, some kind of music. It's very annoying and it destroys really the browsing experience. So, what Google did, they said, This is, we're going to write standards for well behaved ads. They have to load certain speed. They can't play sound automatically. They can't pop up. They can't do this. And there were certain they can't cover more than a certain percentage of the screen. And they had a whole series of requirements that they would place on ads uh, in order to um, meet in, in in order for them in order for the ad to meet the Google standard. And then what the ad blocker does, if anybody delivers ads that don't meet the the Google-approved standard, it blocks them. Now, that gives all the vendors an incentive to fix their ads and make them so they're not as obtrusive. And once I went to Google Chrome, you know, the loads the pages started loading faster. I didn't have these obtrusive ads. So I'm sort of um, hooked on Google Chrome now because it's just made, it just made my browsing experience much more pleasant. And they are cleaning up the the Internet. Now, I still have this privacy issue because Google Chrome, they want you to log on with your Gmail account. They track everything you're doing. So I would moved away from Google Chrome because I didn't like the obtrusive invasion of privacy that Google was doing with me. But I'm back with Chrome now because of this ad block feature. And I do actually approve of ads because there's a lot of content on the Internet that I like to read and content generation isn't free. So if there's a, a, a web page that I like and I like the content, I have no problem with that web page earning revenue because they're delivering ads to me. And so, I think it's um, it's a good compromise on how to deal with ad- advertising on the internet. We got an email from Jim in Bowie. Dear Doc and Jim, I've got an iPhone 7s and inadvertently deleted all my notes. Um, and then I saved it. Then I saved the notes, which meant I, I, I basically saved an empty file. So these notes went all the way back to 2001. I need to get them back. What are my options? Enjoy the show li- li- live here in Buoy. Well, Jim, you, you can't basically um, restore from your current backup because your current backup has an empty notes folder. So you have to go back to a previous, to a previous backup. Now one of the problems is you've got a 7s. It could be some of your previous backups, are for another version of the iPhone, like an iPhone 6s, for instance. And your 7s is not going to restore from a, you know, from a. Um, it won't restore from a different operating system. So if you've got a higher level operating system in your 7s than you had in your 6s, it won't, it won't restore. Also, the way the iPhone restore works, it's either all or nothing. You actually have to restore the entire backup. You can't just restore one file, and you may have made changes to your iPhone, and you don't want to restore the whole backup. You just want to restore one file, so you don't have an option if you use the, if you use the, um, uh, you know, the iPhone restore features. So, uh, you know, you have to get some third-party software. You search around; there are quite a few that are available. Here are a couple: Phone Rescue is one. Phone Rescue for iOS. It's forty-nine dollars. You download it, and then you can you can you can you can basically restore one file. You can restore the message file, uh, or the notes file. And that and the the name of the file is either going to be notes.sqlite or notes_store.sqlite. So anyway, the both of the file names have notes in it, so you'll be able to locate them. There's also another uh, restore program called AnyTrans. For iOS, it's $39. Now, AnyTrans is nice in that it's sort of a data management system. It allows you to transfer data from one phone to another. It allows you to actually do things. It's, it's really almost a content management system. So AnyTrans has more capacity than Phone Rescue uh, for just manipulating the data on your iPhone. But either one of those will will allow you to get your single notes file restored, and then you can you know just copy it to your to your iPhone, and you'll be good to go. We got an email from Doug in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Dear Dr. Schertz, and hey, Jim. Look at that. But no no, Mr. Big infi- Voice.
1: Well, because Mr. Big Voice is quite forgettable,
2: I think. That, that must be it. Yeah. Thanks so much for the past help on my computer-related inquiries. Your analysis and answers have been wonderful in solving many of my confusions and problems, solving dilemmas. My new question, can you send text messages from a computer to a cell phone? And if so, can the computer receive a reply from a person's cell phone as well? You know, can you you know go back and forth? Where in the internet can I get up-to-date information on this SMS gateway that has to be used to talk to the uh, talk to the um, comput- talk to the cell phone? You've got the best broadcasting computer- broadcasting computer show out there. Thanks. In in our price range. In our price range. Doug Baton Rouge, Louisiana. (laughs) That's right. Okay, text messages, Doug, as you know, can be sent from personal computer to any mobile device via a gateway, either an SMS gateway or a multimedia message service gateway. And you can send them from, and all the mail clients are basically set up to send to those gateways. So you can send them from Outlook or from Thunderbird or from any of the... Or from Apple Mail, any of the any of the um, common mail services will support sending email to these to these gateways. Now, what the gateways? Now now you you have to send the message as ASCII text only, because it's expecting a text message. So if you send it in HTML or non-ASCII characters, it'll just be gibberish on the cell phone. And but most of your um, email clients are going to handle that for you, because it's going to recognize you're sending it to an SMS gateway. Now. The SMS gateways, they handle just straight traditional text messages, so you're limited to 140 characters. It's text only, no pictures. If you send it to an MMS gateway, a multimedia messaging service gateway, then you can send pictures, and you can send, you know, you, you can send... Oops, Sorry. Mr. Up, Big Voice I chewing up
1: stuff or something later for us later and it played, of course. I'm so, not having a good morning over here.
2: <laughs> so you can so you can send it to the MMS gateway. Now you can also send text messages to the MMS gateway. So I'd recommend just send everything to the MMS gateway and you're set. Now each of the carriers has different uh, has a different domain for their uh, for their gateways. And they all have the same formula. You take the phone number it's basically you take the ten-digit phone number you don't have the country code, so say, and then you uh, and then you uh, treat it as an email address. So for instance, I would do seven zero three one 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 two 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 two. That's the phone number, and I'd say ampersand at, and then I would have the domain name of the MMS gateway. So in, let's talk about the ATT MMS gateway. It would be mms.att.net. So I would just take the phone number, the 10-digit phone number, at mms.att.net. And you could just send uh, any, you could send a picture there, you could send a text message, and it would be received by the cell phone. And when the cell phone answers, it's going to come right back to your email account. So you can actually have direct connection right there. Now, if you want to use, say, the T-Mobile uh, MMS gateway, it's called Mail.net. And that's the MMS Gateway. That happens to be also the SMS Gateway, so they've got one domain name for both of them. So it would be the phone number at tmomail.net if you want to do T-Mobile. If you want to do Verizon Wireless, you do the phone number, 10-digit phone number, at vzwpix.com. Now, here's the deal. You can I've got a whole table here, which I'm going to post. But yes, if, you do. But if you want to find the table yourself, just Google SMS Gateway Wikipedia. And they've got Wikipedia's got a great article on SMS gateways, and the table of MMS gateways and SMS gateways that I'm going to post on Monday is actually in that Wikipedia article, and it's pretty accurate. It was, and they keep updating it, and it's got it's got Project Phi, T-Mobile, Sprint, U.S. Cellular, Virgin Mobile. It's got all of the all of the main ones, and so it's actually quite quite good. Now here's the uh, it's now you you don't the thing with text messages, there's no subject line like there is in email. So the subject line just goes into your character like it's part of the message. So uh, what I do when I send uh, a message to, you know, to one of these gateways from my computer, I just leave the subject line blank and I just fill out the uh, whatever message I want to have and just ship it off. The other thing you have to be mindful of, some of the uh, some of the business email accounts have these big disclaimers at the bottom. Don't use the data for this or that and some you long deal. So that whole thing goes. So if you're sending it to a uh, you know to, to an SMS gateway and you only got 140 characters, you you may want to truncate all that stuff at the bottom of the email and just send the 140 characters. So just go just Google Wikipedia SMS gateway and you'll get the whole list right there. Uh, we got an email from uh, Donna in Kansas. Dear Doc and Jim, I've been hearing about Facebook selling my data and my pri- and that my privacy cannot be assured. How can I best protect myself from Facebook data abuses, or do, <laughs> I, or do I just need to leave Facebook altogether? Say, don't
1: be on Facebook. Love,
2: love the show, Donna. Well, you should be concerned, Donna, because Facebook's been up to some nefarious business with your data. They're basically selling it, making money on your data, monetizing the data. I mean, actually, you realize nothing's free. Right. So Facebook has to make money. And how, and how do they make money? They make money by collecting your data, figuring out the kind of stuff you like to buy, and then, and then different vendors will use that database to deliver ads to you that, that they believe are targeted to the stuff you buy. So, so they sell ads using very targeted data. Then they also just sell your data to third parties, and they can use it for anything, like political elections like or, the, or anything they want or, or, or psychometric analyses. And so they they sell your data, and they also use the data to deliver ads. And that's how Facebook makes money. And so they're, they, they're not really a charity, so you expect them that, that they would that they'd have to make money somehow. So this is a, how you can protect yourself from uh, abuses on, uh, on Facebook. First of all, don't do any of these fun quizzes. Oh yeah, or apps because anytime you do these fun quizzes, you're, you're basically giving uh, this little small print, and you're giving the rights of the people that are doing the quiz to all of your data. You're also giving the rights to all of your friends' data, because they they, they they This is this is the way Facebook does it. If you—you you know, you you share your friends' data too, and so, so you don't want to take these quizzes, and you and you don't want any kind of apps where you're answering questions. Just don't do any of those, because the only reason they have that is to have an excuse for you to opt in, so they can steal your data. Now, also, you want to change your privacy settings. Now. The, the uh, now you see the reason they, what, what I was saying when you take these these little quizzes online, you're basically overriding your privacy settings because you're given them permission to take your data. so you don't want to do that. But then you want to have your you know your default privacy settings set so that you know everybody can't see what you've got going on. And so there's what you want to do to manage your privacy settings you, you, you tap the drop down arrow on the top right side of the Facebook and choose settings. And then select privacy, and here you can control who sees your posts, who sees your phone number, who sees your friend requests, and more. Now, I would certainly set your phone number and your friend requests and other things so that only you can see that data. You know, there's there's really no no reasons for um, you know for you know your you know for people to see everything. So I would restrict most everything so only you see it. And the only things you want other people to see might be your posts. So you can decide to do that. Because, you see, if you share your data with friends, if your friends take a quiz, they're sharing all your data. So you've got to be careful. Okay, the, the next point, if you want to keep safe on Facebook, is beware who your friends are. Yeah. Because if they, if they don't have strict privacy settings, then all the photos and all the stuff that you're tagged in and things that are in their news are going to just, you know, be sc- scooped up by these unscrupulous data people. So, control your friends. If you don't really know people or you don't know what they're doing, just you you don't you don't need to have them. So, just don't get a whole bunch of friends that you don't know very well. And suggest to your friends that they should limit their privacy settings to protect you. And you want to you want to avoid all third-party apps. Like have you ever noticed like you might be with uh, say ways and Waze will do something. That would
1: like, be you, not me.
2: Yeah, I love Waze. I know you But, do. but he gives me a choice. He says, would you like to log in using your Facebook account? I never do that. I log in using my email and a password that I've created. Mm-hmm. Because if you log into an app using your Facebook account or using your LinkedIn account or using some other account, you're basically giving that application access to all of your data, all of your friends' contacts and everything. And you don't know what they're doing I Didn't with know it.
1: that. That's yeah. a, that's a good point. So
2: do not do not use these automated logons for any third party apps. Now you can also turn on to, to give yourself some extra security because you do if somebody tries to steal your account, this is for identity theft, you can set up so that if anybody logs into your Facebook account from a, a computer that's never been used before, you get a notification. Hey, there's some computer in Thailand just logged into your account. You get a notification. And then you might want to take action. You can also turn on two-factor authentication, which I highly recommend. It'll keep your so that even if somebody does have your password, there's a there's a code that's sent to your cell phone, and then you've got to put in the code that comes to your cell phone in order to finally log on, and that's the second factor, the code that's sent to the cell phone. Or the code could be sent to your email address, and so with two-factor authentication, your, your system is much more secure. So to turn on these extra security settings, simply go to the settings page and then select security and log in, and then on the left side and then scroll down to setting up extra security. So that's the that would be the those would be the things that you could do. Now many people are just saying, why don't I just leave Facebook? So a lot of people just leaving Facebook, and then of course if you don't put any data in Facebook you are protected but remember if you delete your account your account's deleted but the data still there and it's still used by Facebook
1: Re- there's, they don't there's the, no way to get rid of the data
2: they don't they don't get rid of the data they That's don't crazy. promise to get rid of the data mm. so so you so what is on the web stays on the web and if you don't want it to, if you don't want to share it with the world, don't put it on the web. Yep,
1: there you Listen, go. we
2: love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and we'll get back to you at the next show or I may email you immediately.
1: It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM 1035 FM HD 2 1039 FM
0: HD 2. Be right back. Ready to make a real difference in 2018? A degree in cybersecurity, digital forensics, or networking and telecommunications could help you secure your future as you help secure the world. Stratford University is now enrolling for career-focused IT degree programs on campus and online. Let Stratford's experienced IT faculty share their industry knowledge and practical solutions to help you succeed in today's most sought-after IT fields with accelerated classes and year-round program starts to help you earn your degree faster with demand at record high levels for cybersecurity, digital forensics and networking telecommunications careers now is the time to act stratford makes it easy turning your qualified experience into credits earned and if you're a vet they'll help you maximize your military benefits get complete details and register today at stratford.edu slash 18it that's stratford.edu slash 18it If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
2: Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for
0: Profiles in IT.
2: Right on the money. telling you. Today we're going to feature Gerald Anderson Lawson. Gerald Anderson Lawson, as friends called him Larry, was an African. I'd Go Jerry. Jerry, I mean Jerry. Yeah,
1: Jerry. <laughs> oh, it was Jerry.
2: It was Jerry. Yeah, it was Jerry. I've I've got. Um,
1: you got Larry on the brain. I got something.
2: Larry on the brain. Yeah, his friends called him Jerry for Gerald. He was an African American electronic engineer, best known for creating the Fairchild game console and the video game cartridge, which at its time was a major breakthrough. Lawson was born in Brooklyn, New York City on December 1st, 1940. His mom really focused on his education. She got him to an elementary school in another part of the city that she felt was a better educational environment for him. One that was prominently white, if I can say that. Mm -hmm. And and she was actively involved in his education. So she was really focused on him achieving something with his life, and she basically instilled in him a growth mindset that he could do anything. And he had a great first grade teacher. His first grade teacher had a similar belief that Jerry could do anything. And his first grade teacher gave him a picture of George Washington Carver, who was a black inventor Mm -hmm. who was born into slavery. And she said, Jerry, you can do exactly what George Washington Carver did. You can achieve things and you can invent. And so he had this picture of George Washington Carver on his, right by his desk at home, and that was his inspiration for actually striving to learn and to do things significant. And he loved to tinker around. He had, a, he had an amateur radio station that he built. He built the hardware. Now he was living in the projects in New York which was the low income housing he built his own ham radio station in the projects he hung the antenna out the window <laughs> he got his own he got his own amateur radio license and he actually was running a radio station right out of the projects
1: <laughs> great idea I mean this
2: this was this was like a young boy and and this was because his first grade teacher and his mother and his father all believed in him, mm-hmm. and he believed in himself. I think there's something about there is there's something about you know having people who believe in you mm-hmm. that actually changes the trajectory that young people go. Agreed. There's there's a lesson to be learned here. Uh, he he also he got, was really interested in electronics. He spent his teenage years repairing electronics all over the city. So he earned <laughs> he earned money by fixing radios, fixing TVs all over the city. And the, the thing is, what's amazing, he taught himself everything he knew about engineering. He just got books and just learned it himself. He did attend Queens College and the City College of New York, but he never finished his degree because he was always tinkering on stuff, and he just felt this academia was just not relevant. So uh, he ended up, after learning all of his engineering stuff and building all of this electronics, he ended up getting a, a, a job at Grumman Electric, he later got a job at Federal Aircraft and they were they were working on federal contracts and then finally he landed a job with Kaiser Electronics out in Silicon Valley and he moved to Silicon Valley. Once he got in Silicon Valley in 1970 he joined Fairchild Semiconductors. This was one of the you know the premier developers of uh, you know of Silicon integrated circuits, mm-hmm. and you know, the people at Fairchild were a precursor to what happened at Intel. This this one of the hotbeds of, of innovation there. And so he, he was hired by Fairchild Semiconductor in San Francisco. He was hired as an applications engineering consultant within the sales division. So so you see, he really didn't have a technical job. But what he did, he went to his garage and he built out of in his garage, out of electronics that he just scrounged, an early arcade game called Demolition Derby. <laughs> he built this in his garage. He showed it to the guys there at Fairchild, and uh, and they were impressed. in In the mid seventies, I mean, this was about four years after he had first was first hired at by Fairchild. They made him chief hardware engineer and director of engineering and marketing for Fairchild's video game division. Wow. In other words, he created the video game division at Fairchild mm-hmm. just with this little project in the, um, you know that he did in the, uh, in the garage. And this gets back again to this mindset. He believed he could do anything. He wanted to do that. He didn't wait for the guys at Fairchild to give a job and he applies for it. No, he just built the video game. In his garage, and then showed it to them and created the division. I think it's, I'm just really impressed with Jerry. Yeah. You know, he's, uh, so he was, uh, he led the development of the Fairchild Channel F console that was released in 1976. Now, at that time, all the game consoles, they, they loaded the game on read-only memory, and the read-only memory, the ROM, was soldered in place. So if you'd buy a game console, you could only play one game so you'd have to buy a different console for every game. He got the idea. He said, why can't we put the read-only memory and put it into a cartridge? So if you want to play a different game, you just stick in a different cartridge, you get a different game. So he invented the game cartridge, and this was like a this was like a revolutionary idea at the time. In fact, the FCC, I mean, it was so revolutionary that the FCC couldn't quite figure it out because they, the, <laughs> the FCC always required that you have to do RF measurements of all your hardware to make certain that you're not doing RF interference for other electronics. Mm-hmm. And so they treated every single game cartridge as another piece of electronics because it actually had ROM in it that was plugged in. And so he had to actually get an FCC certification for every every one of these game cartridges because they just didn't really understand it as opposed to getting approval for just the game console itself. Uh but eventually the FCC figured it out and they just let they they you didn't have to get FCC approval for the game cartridge. Now the channel F was not really commercially successful, but the cartridge was a Innovative approach it was picked up by others. In particular, it was picked up by Atari, and the Atari 2600 that was released in 1977 had the game cartridge. Now, while he was with Fairchild, Lawson and Ron Jones were the sole black members of the Homebrew Computer Club. Remember, the Homebrew Computer Club is the club that Steve Jobs belonged to, Steve Wozniak, and this is where all these hackers were like making early early computers and he was in with these innovators. So he was one of the first African American in the heart of Silicon Valley doing technical work. This I mean this is an amazing story I think when I when I was reading about him. Um he um he he he, he then eventually uh he, he formed this one comp yeah he left Fairchild. Oh oh I has got one more thing I had to say. He said while he was at Fairchild he interviewed Steve Wozniak. Steve Wozniak for oh, yeah. a job. He interviewed Steve Wozniak for a job at Fairfield, for a job at Fairchild, but didn't hire <laughs> him.
1: <laughs> Funny.
2: Now, now eventually, uh, Fairchild got out of the business because their game console just wasn't really successful. I mean, they they were more into defense contracting and semiconductors. It wasn't their core business. So he, he left Fairchild, started his own company called VideoSoft, where he wrote software for other game consoles. In fact, he... He was writing software for the Atari 2600. But after five years, that that company folded. And then he started doing consulting work. I mean, one of his consulting projects was he was working for Stevie Wonder to produce the Wonder Clock. (laughs) And then the Wonder Clock, what it would do, it would wake up kids in the morning with the sound of their parents saying, hey, it's time to get up. So you'd record your voice, and then the child would hear the parent telling them to wake up.
1: That's pretty. I fear yeah. it would be a Stevie Wonder song.
2: That's, that's what I thought at first, but it was really the sound of the I'd parents. I'd go for the
1: Stevie Wonder song.
2: Now, Lawson later worked for the Stanford Mentor Program because he wanted to inspire other young people to enter technology, and he started working on a book. Now, on March 11th, on March 2011, he was honored as an industry pioneer for his work on the game cartridge concept by the International Game Developers Association. Around uh, uh, 2013, uh, he died of complications of diabetes after a very eventful and productive life. Yeah, really. So there you Everything you want to know about Gerald Anderson,
1: lawyer. That is really interesting stuff, and I hope yeah. you were paying attention to what Dr. Schertz was saying because your knowledge... Your memory could win you free lunch by playing the pop quiz coming up here on Tech Talk Radio. Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2. On the web at federalnewsradio.com and stratford.edu. Go to the bottom of the Stratford page. Look on the right side of the bottom for the Tech Talk icon. You can learn more about us and and listen to all of our shows there. Watch us do the program. Download the Periscope app to your device and follow us at WFED Tech Talk.
0: Ready to make a real difference in 2018? A degree in cybersecurity, digital forensics, or networking and telecommunications could help you secure your future as you help secure the world. Stratford University is now enrolling for career-focused IT degree programs on campus and online. Let Stratford's experienced IT faculty share their industry knowledge and practical solutions to help you succeed in today's most sought-after IT fields with accelerated classes and year-round program starts to help you earn your degree faster with demand at record high levels for cybersecurity, digital forensics and networking telecommunications careers now is the time to act stratford makes it easy turning your qualified experience into credits earned and if you're a vet they'll help you maximize your military benefits get complete details and register today at stratford.edu slash 18it that's stratford.edu slash 18it
3: The security guard at the front desk, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host,
1: Jim Ross. Good morning, and thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday here on Federal News Radio. We're going to play the pop quiz. Now your chance to find out that sometimes lunch really can be free. In Profiles in IT, we just finished talking about Gerald Lawson, an electrical engineer and inventor of the Fairchild game console and the video game cartridge. As a child, his parents and his teachers instilled in him a belief that he could do anything. So he did. Today, it is a fill-in-the-blank question. When he was a child in his New York apartment, Gerald Lawson built and operated this... The first person to fill in the blank correctly wins tickets for two for lunch at any of the Stratford dining rooms in the Washington area.
3: If you can fill in the blank correctly, this would be a super time to pick up your device and contact. If you're going from West of the Rockies, really? Why you still bother? If you graduated to Life by the Water in Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. Breaker 1-9 if you're listening in... Canada. Call us on the wildcard line, 877 And of course, as always, the international line is 877 Andrew Mitchell, our adjunct professor for prize distribution and crowd control, is standing by to take your call. So, dial now. Okay, beware, selfies make your nose look
2: bigger.
1: I know some people who take some really awful (laughs) selfies.
2: Now, listen, this is, a you know, the short distance from the camera combined with the wide angle of the lens makes your nose look larger. According to the Journal of Facial Plastic Surgery, (laughs) distorted (laughs) self-portraits are leading to more people requesting nose jobs
4: to, to make
2: better selfies. In 2017, 55% of the facial plastic surgeons reported seeing patients who wanted to look better in selfies. That's up from 13% the prior year. And the primary way to look better in selfies is to make your nose smaller.
1: I can think of some other things. I know people this, have a tendency to take these pictures from down low. Oh, and when that, you get to be our age, like when you're that, that, you're 32, I'm 27, that, right? That doesn't you have this stuff right. under your neck, and when yeah. you take it from down low, it doesn't look. You good. need to go up high. Yes, go up high.
2: That's another factor. But we're just focused on the nose. Line. Okay, I'm According sorry. According to the
1: JAMA study,
2: JAMA, JAMA, the, uh, this is the Journal of the American Medical Association, Facial Plastic Surgery, JAMA. Uh, this study broke down the selfie face using a model from the Stanford's Department of Computer Sciences. Now, quantify how much the selfies increase the nose size. Research fellow, Ohad Fried, came up with a mathematical model of the face. His model revealed that if you take a selfie 12 inches from the face, that's really close.
1: That is very close. That's too close. That's going to be all face all the time. That
2: it will make your nose look 30% bigger. <laughs> And it will make the tip of your nose appear 7% wider than if the photo were snapped at 5 feet away, which is, you know, it takes a very long arm for that. So therein lies the
1: problem. That is a problem.
2: That is the problem. So beware. Selfies make your nose look
1: bigger. Remember, up, up high, not down low. Then up high. That's then up right. high. That's okay, right. There you go.
2: Yeah. Cell phone addiction has become a huge problem. Yeah. And one of the biggest problems is... Notifications. So what you want to do to keep your cell phone from like drawing you back all the time so you can't get away from it, turn off notifications. You want to turn off all sound notifications. You want to turn off badge notifications. Like, for instance, isn't it – you look at your cell phone and you see unread – that little red dot that says mm-hmm. unread emails.
1: It's like, oh, i got to make that go away.
2: Turn that off. Right. You can just turn off the badge notification and then you don't see unread emails. You can turn off any screen notifications and you'll be set free.
0: Free this, at last.
2: This is the tip of
1: the week. You know, I saw the dumbest thing on TV this morning before I came in here, and it was somebody who has come up with a – a it's a little sack – Mm-hmm. with a drawstring on the top, and they call it a sleeping bag for you. I mean, come <laughs> on, people. Wow. You have to buy a bag to put your cell phone in, not to use it.
2: Oh, my goodness. Uh. That is ridiculous. People are holding on to their old cell phones longer yep. and longer and longer. Mm-hmm. Now, a common comment that you hear from phone owners is, I'll probably wait until it breaks. <laughs> <laughs> phone replacement has slumped since 2013. But well, they've gotten
1: so expensive.
2: Yeah, they're getting, and it used to be that consumers would buy a new cell phone about every 20 months, and that's because there was a progression of capacity that kept getting better and better and better and better. Well, now there's the, not cell, s- the cell phones are so good you don't need anything any better. Mm-hmm. So now it's just a matter of how long can you keep it. And the other thing too, a thousand dollars or twelve hundred dollars right. for an iPhone,
1: most just, people can't it's Aren't. just
2: it's just a little bit m- much and it's and it and there's not that much of incremental improvement and so people are saying uh, i think we'll just wait in fact in us china japan and uk these are the four largest markets all have seen a slowdown or flat growth in the past year because people are delaying the purchase of a new phone now that gets me to the point that i think is very interesting mm-hmm. how can you extend the life of your phone. Excellent point. Because there is kind of a built-in obsolescence in these phones. I mean, re- you remember um, uh, Apple was caught slowing the operating system down as the battery died, so that the phone was so slow that he said, "I got to get rid of this thing; it's too slow." And that was really a plan, I think, to force people just to get new phones, uh, to get a new phone so they could get something faster. Well, there is a way to actually maintain your phone. There are two reasons that the phone slows down. First, all your memory is used up, so you don't you don't you don't have right. enough memory to to operate. And secondly, your battery starts failing. So what you want to do is, if your if your phone starts, you want to you want to look at your memory and you want to just get rid of the stuff you don't use. You want to get rid of all the apps you don't use. Try to clear as much out of your memory as you can. Now, a lot of times the, uh, the phone will keep stuff cached, and it will tie up memory, and you can't clear the memory because you can't control the cache, and there's kind, of a easy, there's kind of a neat trick that works on the iPhone. Suppose you want to download a movie mm-hmm. and save it to your iPhone, but the movie is actually larger than the memory capacity of your iPhone. So what the iPhone will do, it won't download the movie because it can't, but it will clear all the cache, as much cache as it can, in order to make room. Huh. So one guy ended up doing that, and he he ended up freeing up almost two gigabytes of space. Wow. So that is one thing that you can do to manage your memory. Now, the second thing is batteries. It makes a lot of sense to A battery is really only good for about 500 cycles. Mm Mm-hmm. That's kind of and after five hundred cycles it degrades by twenty percent. A battery typically is gonna last about two years. Okay. So it makes sense to replace the battery after two years. Now if you've got an Android phone, you can replace it for twenty to forty dollars. Some Android phones even have removable removable batteries. Poop, pop it in. Now the Apple, unfortunately, does not have a removable battery, and that costs you have to take it into the shop. If you get an authorized Apple dealer to replace it, that's $79, but it's worth it. Yeah. But the good news is that for this year, for 2018, because of what we call Slowgate, where <laughs> where Apple was caught slowing down older devices, they have agreed to replace batteries for only $29. So I'd say get a new battery replacement yep. and then keep your phone as long as you can until the features of the new phone are so compelling that you want to get it. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at, at Stratford.edu. And we'd like you to go to the Stratford University website, which, of course, is stratford.edu, and uh, check out the programs and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio.
1: Thanks for joining us this week for Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday at 9 on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2 and 1039 FM HD 2.
0: Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.
4: To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot